0: Girl Scouts of Central Indiana, Garmond Construction, the Crown Plaza Hotel, Grand Hall and Conference Center at Historic Union Station, the law firm of Bose, McKinney and Evans, and the Bose Public Affairs Group, the McGinley's Golden Ace Inn, and McAllister Machinery, your friendly neighborhood caterpillar dealer. You can find all your sales and rental equipment needs at McAllister.com. We are pleased to announce our podcast is now a member of the All Indiana Podcast Network in partnership with Wish TV. You can find Leaders and Legends at allindianapodcastnetwork.com. Thank you for joining us on the Leaders and Legends podcast. Our guest today is Elaine Beadle. Her resume is so long that I won't try to go through all of it. You're going to enjoy the conversation. We are joined by co-host Danielle Shockey, CEO girl scouts of central indiana but before i turn it over to danielle i do want to say that elaine currently is secretary and chief executive officer indiana destination development corporation you're going to hear all about it because if you don't think that tourism isn't important to the state of indiana uh, the recent drama over covid should have hit that home pretty hard thank you elaine for coming on the podcast
1: You're welcome. Happy to be here. Thank you. It's an honor.
0: Well, that's very, very kind. And uh, we love having Danielle on. And that means, Danielle, you are in control.
2: All right. I'm thrilled to be here, Robert. And Elaine, thanks for joining us. I'm super excited to talk to you and learn about, one, sometimes it's hard to say lifelong Hoosier, but in fact, you are a lifelong Hoosier. Tell our listeners Just that brief little bit of background, where you grew up, college, and and then I want to talk about the current role you're in. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Uh, You're
1: right. Lifetime Hoosier, born and raised here. Uh, Batesville, Indiana is where I'm originally from. Uh, Grew up on a farm about five miles outside of Batesville. Um, uh, Went to Batesville High School, then on to Hanover College, where I majored in math. Uh, then I got my first job in Indianapolis and so moved to Indianapolis from um, from Hanover and uh, I started my career in banking while I was with Indiana National Bank. I ended up uh, doing night school with Butler University and earning my MBA with the finance emphasis there and uh, spent a total of 10 years with Indiana National Bank. That's uh, what I will attribute to probably helping me find my true life uh, Endeavors, which was financial planning. I was uh, asked to join the trust division to start a financial planning practice for the bank and didn't know what it was about, but knew that it would be a nice change for me from what I was doing. So, took them up on that. And, you know, sometimes you look back and you say, What was a turning point in your career to get you going on a particular path? And obviously, that was the one for me and um, enjoyed uh, the financial planning side. Ended up leaving uh, Indiana National Bank after about 10 years and joined. r Newkirk, Uh, they were very much interested in the financial planning profession as well and had been uh, a publishing firm that did a lot with the charitable side, uh, but also educational reference books, marketing uh, for the brokerage industry, as well as the life insurance industry. And they wanted to add financial planning professionals to that group. And so they hired me to do that. Uh, But that's where I learned all about mergers and acquisitions, because the company um, ended up being sold. Uh, that publishing company, along with several others, Howard Sams, and you might recognize that name from around Indianapolis, but there were seven or eight in the division that got sold um, by I- to ITT, who then basically turned around and sold r Newkirk to Longman, a financial publisher out of Chicago, who said, we're moving you to Chicago. So, um, I stayed with them for probably just a full year and uh, didn't want to move to Chicago. And, you know, I think many of our key employees did not want to either. So, I'm not sure they got the value for what they paid for in that. But um, uh, I was doing, I was director of financial planning for them, basically moving from being a practitioner to providing services like marketing, uh, software, and those kinds of things. Uh, but when they moved, left town, I started my own practice and uh, did that for about a year, year and a half when Coopers and Lybrand, an accounting firm, the predecessor to Waterhouse PricewaterhouseCoopers, uh, asked me to join the local office and be head of financial planning for them. Really, it was that time when everybody was trying to figure out banks as well as CPA firms. Is this something that they should be engaged in? And uh, so I joined our um Pricewaterhouse, or excuse me, Coopers and Librand, and provided financial planning services. Uh, But there I got exposed to a lot in the tax world, uh, in particular income tax for corporations as well as individuals, which was a great education for me. Uh, At Indiana National, I was part of the trust division, so I learned a lot about estate planning, which is also a big part of financial planning and investments. So both of those those places where I was doing financial planning was a great learning experience for me as well. So everything kind of builds on something else. And so that was the case there. Uh, but with R&R, with uh, Coopers and Librarian, I was there for about two and a half years and chose to come out and start the practice I have today. So got a little bit of a taste of it, um, went back to the, the, the corporate side, but then got, um, got back out and then... Beetle Financial Consulting was created, and that was 30 plus years ago. So uh, it was a great, uh, I, I really enjoy the profession, the financial planning side, helping people with that, but also doing the investment management
2: um, that we do through the firm. You founded in 1989, Beetle On
1: Financial? January 1st of 1980, um, 89. and so um You know, it could have been December 30th or it could have been January 1st, but
2: you know, basically use that as the starting date. Uh, So it's been pretty interesting. In 2017, you got pulled away um, from your helm role at Beetle fin- Financial, and the governor lured you to the state house. What was your um, what was that like being asked to come and and serve in that first role uh, as the head and the president of the Indiana Economic Development Corporation, where you stayed for two years? So I want to talk about that first before I, we talk about your current role.
1: Okay. Well, you know, it's funny that, but uh, Beetle Financial at the time was, is in a very good spot. We have, you know, 20 some employees and I had already started working with a leadership team that um, I was very confident in what their, their skills were and their leadership abilities. And likewise, um, I had kind of removed myself from the daily work uh, for clients. In other words, I was engaged with clients yet, but someone else was always doing some of the work. So I, wasn't a key cog in getting some things done, which was really, um, as you look back, the only way I could could do what I did uh, and step away and take the opportunity with the state of Indiana was because the firm was in a good spot and the leadership team could take over. Now, so I get this call from the governor um, shortly after his election in 2016, so I think it was early December, and said, hey, I've got a question for you. Uh, I don't want you to give me an answer now, but think about it. I would like you to serve um, the state of Indiana. Of course, I'm thinking, oh, he wants me to be on a commission, a board, something like that. Uh, and then he lays out the idea of president of the Indiana Economic Development Corporation. And so I um, heard what he said, thought about it. Uh, talked to a few people who served in that capacity before and just tried to get a hand handle around what it might mean. Um, but um before the end of the year, I, I said I would do that. And so February 1st of 2017, I joined his cabinet as a president of the Indiana Economic Development Corporation, which is a quasi-government entity that really works to bring business to Indiana, uh, and create more jobs here, as well as help companies that are already here kind of expand their footprint. So it was um, really interesting and kind of fun to kind of move into that kind of capacity. I will tell you, it was not without some anxiety. Um, when you start a firm and you grow a firm and um, you know, you're a key part of everything going on, it's a key part of your life and suddenly you step away, there was a huge um, separation anxiety. And you know for the first uh, probably month or so that I was downtown uh, trying to get in, you know, engaged with the Indiana Economic Development Corporation, you know, your mind is still back. What's going on back there? What should we be doing? Luckily, I got so busy with the other job, you kind of forget about that. Um, But I have a lot of faith and a lot of confidence in the leadership team that I have there, and they've been doing a great job. So um, it's really kind of a blessing because you really don't have, many business owners don't have that opportunity to look and watch their leadership team really kind of take over. Because too often, uh, it's a situation where, you know, Something happens and you're suddenly gone from that position. You don't really know what the leadership team can do. I see them and I can see what they're doing. And um, you know, someday I hope to get back uh, and rejoin them all. So it's not a permanent exit from the firm, but uh, it's good to see
2: how they do. And so it's been it's been rewarding from that perspective. So, so you stayed in the role at the head of the Economic Development Corp for two years, mm-hmm. and then there was a newly created. Indiana Destination Development Corporation, which is a great title, and I think Robert kind of hinted a little bit that it's about tourism, but when I read about it, it's it's tourism plus. To me, it's also about the people who live here, how do we retain those, and how do we recruit? So describe, how did you have a role when you were sitting on the helm of the IEDC? Did you say to the governor, hey, here's this gap? And I think maybe this could fill it or did he come to you and say, hey, here's this gap and let's kind of let's kind of put you in this this new leadership role.
1: Right. Well, let me it's it's probably easy if I kind of start from the beginning as how it all got created. Um, In 2017, the legislature asked that a um, uh, task force be created to look at how tourism should be handled in the state of Indiana, because we had the Indiana Office of Tourism Development at that time and um, basically said, look at every every other state. How is it organized? How is it funded? How is it working? And come back with a recommendation. So the task force was created then in the fall of 2017 and the Lieutenant Governor, because the IOT, the Indiana Office of Tourism Development reported to her, um, asked me if I would be on the task force uh, because she wanted a representative from the Economic Development Corporation. So I did that. And um, the task force did its work and we recommended that a um, quasi-government entity get established to basically be the tourism arm for the state of Indiana. And that uh, was taken up in the 2019 legislature and it was passed. And so the Indiana Destination Development Corporation was legislatively directed to basically replace the Indiana Office of Tourism Development. And really, the legislation was all about, you know, how do we how do we bring in more visitors? How do we expand our, our leisure and hospitality um, industry to bring more more dollars in from that perspective? So that got passed. Uh, however, the lieutenant governor and the governor um, thought about it, and this was their idea that you basically we needed to expand it. We needed to expand the mission from simply trying to bring in visitors to really looking at how do we um, uh, promote brand and tell Indiana's authentic story to help attract and retain talent and students and business as well as visitors because they're all linked together. And basically what we're trying to do is say, here's the quality of life in Indiana. Here's all the leisure and travel industry is, is, what we all want to do when we're not working. And, you know, when we think about it, talent is a competitive factor right now. And businesses can't exist without being able to attract talent. And talent wants to go where they know that they're going to have a lifestyle that they're going to enjoy. And, you know, you hear it today, and whether it's true or not, millennials do think about You know, where do I want to live? And then I'll find the job. Now, whether or not that actually happens everywhere, I don't know, but it's still high on their list of qualifications. And so if they have a choice in jobs in different locations, they're going to look at what else is there. And I think right now the problem with Indiana is that we're not known very well outside um, the Midwest, obviously, but even there, what is the perception of Indiana? And what we're finding out is that it's not a bad perception, but it's just no perception. You know, if they don't understand, you know, we get thrown at. Oh, they're the pet, the flyover state. They're nothing but cornfields, Indianapolis 500, but that's it. And so we have really got to do a much better job of messaging. And so that's what this is all about. This is what the IDDC is all about. It's taking um, and telling uh, the story or messaging with the right words to basically tell us, here's our quality of life. Here, here's those things that you want to do when you're not working, and being able to brand it. So, what are the virtues, the values? What's that? Who's your, who's your hospitality that everybody loves so much? Uh, and how do we tell the world about that? And um, there's been so often I've had conversations with CEOs who basically say, you know, I've got a job, I get a candidate on the line, they love the job, but then they say, why would I come to Indiana? And they don't have a way of answering that question. And we want to help. Talent recruiters answer that question. We want to help students who are here in our colleges and universities to understand what it would be like to, to live here. And we know that keeping that talent then gives businesses a real reason for being here, um, you know, and a reason for coming here because they know their talent will follow. And, um, and so I think that's why it's so important to be able to tell the story. And if we tell it right, visitors are going to come too because, you know, visitors really tend to think about. Oh, let's go there because I think it might be a fun place to live someday. Let's go there and visit. And um, so I think if we tell, if we do this, if we do this right, it'll help all of those different areas.
2: So if you were in a in a spot to give that elevator speech to the to a young up and coming professional that Indianapolis or Indiana would love to have, what would you what would you say to them? What would you say is why would they choose? Why should they choose Indiana?
1: You know that's. That's the $84,000 question or whatever. I mean, that's what we really have to try and figure out is how do we message and how do we, how do we determine the, the brand? And the, the brand is not determining the brand, it's uncovering it because the brand is already here. It's in the fabric of Indiana. It's our values and virtues, as I mentioned before. And then how do we message that? But, you know, I would basically say to a lot of young people, this is an easy place to live. I mean, when, when you think about um, uh, commuting to work, I mean, you can live on a farm, you can live in the suburbs, you can live in downtown urban areas and cities, you can live in small towns, large communities, whatever you'd like. But work is right around the corner. Even if you're 20 miles away, it doesn't take you long to get there, particularly when you think about Indianapolis and getting downtown to Indianapolis. You've got all those options. So I think life is easier here. And you know we've got a a great cost of living. uh, And so you can more quickly pay off your college loans. If you came out of school with some college debt, you can much easier get to a point where you're actually buying a home. Um, So I think the value of the dollar that we have in the Midwest, but I think more than anything, and what we hear from people all the time is that it's the people, it's Indiana. It's it's, um, those Midwest virtues, that friendliness, Uh, And, you know, everyone tries to say, well, what's this, who's your hospitality? And I was asked that question. And I said, I don't know. But I think people who visit here obviously know. And that's what they tell us, that it's the people, it's, it's easy to get engaged in Indiana. And so we just have to be able to put the right words around that and then have everybody project it out. So I can't do this alone. The state can't do this alone. We have got to get our corporations, our associations, our Hoosiers, our, our individuals to give out the same message all the time to really make an impact and, and really help quickly change and get our name out there, get Indiana
2: out there for what it really is and for what we know it is. Yeah, it's uh, anytime you've ever talked to somebody who has visited only has good things to say. Right. The Super Bowl, I mean, was a great example of people loved what they found here. Right. Um, it's almost like you need to say, our slogan needs to become try us. Like live, yeah. here for, live here for a month. You will be pleasantly surprised. You know, so- I think you're right. If we can just
1: get them here. And um, one of the things that we are working on right now is, is a set of videos called Hoosiers by Choice. <laughs> and it's exactly the person you're talking about. It's someone who moved here, maybe reluctantly for a job. They get here and they find out they've just discovered the absolute perfect spot for them. I mean, they, they, they love Indiana and they'll never leave. And so we have collected quite a number of those videos already. And we hope to get those started uh, in the next couple of months to put those out there because I think in their own words, in their own video that they create, they're saying, here's why I love Indiana. It's, it's, it's pretty remarkable. So that, that's what we're
2: gonna try and do. It seems to me, and this is kind of a question, maybe a comment with our, tour, with our convention industry. Mm-hmm. So many people come here for convention. What are they saying when they go back home? And how could we craft something around that network? Because right. it's one of our great success industries is the conventions.
1: Right. right. Um, you know, obviously we're we're in the, we're in the middle of this COVID uh, issue that's hit us as well. And so it has pointed out to central Indiana how important our convention business is, but it suddenly has gone away and got cut back. Now, we think it's going to be coming back, but it, you know, it's going to take some time as well and people getting comfortable with being in crowds and coming out again. But that is a great opportunity. you know, When we have people come here from all over uh, to attend a conference uh, or a convention, whatever it might be, that's an opportunity to give them an experience. And so we've got to do a good job of doing that. And I know Visit Indy does an awful lot to try and get their attendees to be engaged with the community a little bit more and at least you know, enjoy the downtown and get out if they can. And I think we need to work on that to maybe even try and do some additional things there. And, and even we've thought about all kinds of things, you know, having like a kiosk in the convention center where people can then understand what would it be like to live in Indiana and look about, look at cost of living, look at how we'd buy a house, look at all those ty- different types of things and actually compare to where they may be coming from. So, um, you know, we've got some ideas on how to do that and, and we're anxious to kind of get those started as well.
2: And we were, we were doing so very well. When you left the development core, there were so many statistics around Indiana and job. job. I mean, there were so many great, um, I guess, stats, if you will, to point to why Indiana was doing wonderfully. And then COVID. And so you've kind of stepped into this new role at a really challenging time. Mm-hmm. Um, what, how has that changed the strategy, if at all, um, in the new role? And what do you see as kind of the next big opportunity? Um, in your new role as we come out of COVID? Right, well, you're
1: right. I, I actually uh, was appointed to this position in uh, November of 2019. So just really a year ago. So it was almost three years that I was at the um, IEDC. And so it's been about a year in this. And so again, November to March, <laughs> it was gang gangbusters of trying to figure out what we need to do next and how we get this, this new entity started. Uh, And then COVID hit, and we had to really switch because it was then a a matter of pivoting to the idea of how do we keep the leisure, hospitality, travel industry? How do we get them to survive and then continue to thrive? And um, you know, all the numbers show that that was the industry that's been hit the hardest. Uh, You know, we're twenty-eight percent of the jobs, the non-farm jobs in Indiana, but we were thirty-seven percent, or our thirty-seven percent of the jobs lost. So we're taking a a disproportionate heavier hit because of that. And um, you've seen, you know, the restaurants that have had to close and are closing permanently and some of the entertainment venues that are, are going through a very tough time as well. So we're, we're looking for ways that we can hopefully get some CARES Act funding to them so, so they can kind of bridge the gap and get through this and then be able to be there when, when things start opening up again. But the one industry that got hit really hard when when, you know, the governor said, we can't allow this COVID to overtake us. We have got to do some things now, um, like the hunker down Hoosiers and all those types of things. But when that happened, nobody went out and nobody was allowed to go to some of the venues or, or even um, the bars or the other attractions. And so that was an economic hit. And, um, and it's a lot of small businesses, small retail shops that really make up the quality of life and the culture of some of our communities, particularly our smaller communities that are really struggling. And so uh, we pivoted, we tried to do some things there, we created what we call the Indiana Destination Recovery Council. uh, And that was back in uh, June, you know, the IDDC didn't take effect until July first, So we were working, you know, to be really ready to hit the ground running when that happened, and then COVID hits. And so we had to had to pivot as I mentioned and created the Indiana Destination Development, excuse me, Recovery Council to really come together and say what's happening in the industry and what can we do to help? And uh, that was a great group of people, leadership within the industry from around the state.
2: And uh, we were able to put some proposals together and hopefully move some things forward. Well, we all hope so. And I'm gonna uh, pause and give Robert a chance to get some, some airtime here and join us in the conversation.
0: Thank you very much, Danielle. You are listening to Leaders and Legends, a podcast presented by Veteran Strategies, a local veteran public relations enterprise. And you just heard Elaine say it, messaging is everything. So think about that as you look for uh, a PR company that could serve your needs out there, the listeners. I used to tell Mayor Ballard that and he just shook his head and walked out of my office. We are sponsored by Girl Scouts of Central Indiana, Garmond Construction, the Grand Plaza Hotel, Grand Hall, and Conference Center at Historic Union Station, the law firm of Bose McKinney, and Evans, and the Bowes Public Affairs Group, the McGinley's Golden Ace Inn, and McAllister Machinery, your friendly neighborhood Caterpillar dealer. Thank you for joining us on the podcast. Our guest today is Elaine Beadle, Secretary and Chief Executive Officer Indiana Destination Development Corporation. She's had a long distinguished career in business as well, received many awards. She's in multiple halls of fame and we're very, very blessed to have her on the show. Elaine, is there a particular Hoosier leader or legend you admire?
1: Oh, that's a great question. I mean, there are so many. Um, uh, Well, let's see. Well, the um, people that come to mind quickly, uh, women in particular, Sally Rowland, Judge Sarah Evans Barker, um, Yvonne Shaheen, you know, some of the women who really were trailblazers in their own corporations and moving forward or Judge Sarah and, and her career. So, I mean, I think I, I absolutely look up to those women and what their accomplishments have been and, and try to um, use them as mentors whenever I can as well. So we've I think had, that would be it.
0: We've had <laughs> Sally Roland on the podcast and Judge Sarah Evans Barker. They were both wonderful, and we'd love to have Yvonne Shaheen. Who, Miss Shaheen, if you're listening, you get recommended as much as anybody. <laughs> you must come on. Who was it? Angela Angela Brawley was talking about Avener when mm-hmm. we had her on Danielle. Mm-hmm. Uh, you grew up in uh, Batesville, right? Indiana and uh, we are recording this podcast right around Halloween Mm -hmm. so since Batesville is the world's headquarters of casket making
1: Mm -hmm.
0: did that enhance your Halloween experience?
1: (laughs) Uh, Good question but I can say probably not so much.
0: (laughs) They didn't have like caskets full of of skeletons and Dracula littering the
1: Well, if they did, it was only inside the factories. We didn't, we didn't see too much of that outside. So that's a good question, but uh, no, I don't think so. But uh, Sammy Terry probably would have loved to have been there.
0: I think that's true. I used to check in a Mr. Hillenbrand. And when I worked in the hotel business for Jim Dora, Jim Dora Jr. And he was the nicest, one of the nicest, very important, wealthy and powerful men I've ever met. He's just Chad. He was very kind. But I always wondered if you if you lived in like Salem, Massachusetts, what's Halloween like in Salem? Yeah.
1: I think probably they play that up a little bit more than we did in Batesville with our with our casket industry. But uh,
0: well, I can't throw stones because I'm from Irvington, and that's the Halloween that's oh. the Halloween epicenter for not only the city but the state.
1: The haunted houses.
0: It's it's a beautiful beautiful part <laughs> part of the city.
1: It is. It definitely is.
0: Is it fair to say you grew up a farm girl?
1: It is very fair. I used to say I'm a farmer's daughter. Uh, But yeah, absolutely grew up on a farm um, outside of Batesville. Uh, So, you know, I and I will tell you, growing up, I felt I was terribly disadvantaged because all of my friends who lived in Batesville could do all of these things all the time. And I was stuck out in the farm. But
0: was it it like a hog farm or cows or sheep or
1: um, at that time, we raised a lot of beef cattle and 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 hogs as well raised corn and, and, uh, soybeans and wheat and, um, self-sufficient. My dad did not like chickens. So I remember when I was really young for a while, we had chickens and they went away. Um, but, uh, and he didn't do dairy. He didn't do dairy. Uh, he only did beef cattle. So, um, he, pick, he would uh, pick and choose what he would like to do there. But, uh, when you look back on it, it was a great experience. You know, you learn a lot of life lessons, uh, growing up on a farm and, uh, When you think about it, it was a pretty good role model for being self-employed and being um, a business owner.
0: Have you run into in your business career, adult business career, other farm girls, farm kids, and you kind of laugh? Yeah,
1: yeah. Growing, you know, in Indiana, you know, it's not unusual to grow up on a farm in Indiana. So uh, absolutely.
0: One of the things that I I talk to folks about when, when they come to me for advice or just want to have a conversation about starting their own business is how much work goes on behind the scenes in other words you have to, i tell them you have to manage your clients manage your life and manage your business and those are three distinct things mm-hmm. it seemed that a farmer or a farming enterprise would have a significant amount of quote unquote i would i don't know if you say back office would you say back farm back office work did you watch your father do that or watch your mother and father do that and, and learn a little bit for your adult life? Like, you know, Elaine, we got to do all these things here. But don't forget, you got to pay your bills and, and pay your taxes and make sure all your forms are filed. And that's mm-hmm. the part of owning a business that that's quite frankly the most frustrating right. for me. Did you learn that under them? And what do you talk about to young entrepreneurs or older entrepreneurs who want to do their own thing?
1: Right. Oh, a lot of questions in that statement. Um, yes, I, I did see mom and dad working at the kitchen table with, you know, at the time they were, they weren't using computers. They were using the spreadsheets and <laughs> keeping track of all of the expenses and what they bought and what they sold. Cause it was important to be on the, on the tax returns. And, uh, so I, I did observe all of that. It's interesting you bring that up because I really hadn't thought about that, but, uh, you did learn that that was a big, as an important part of what you do. The other important part is just getting the work done, and it's not that. Uh, again, on a farm, and I found that with my own business, it's not an eight to five job. It is a round the clock kind of job, particularly on a farm. I mean, anything can happen at any any twenty in any twenty four hour period, and you've got to be ready to resolve an issue that might come up. Uh, but when you own your own business, even if it's not a farm, you still And still, I still felt that way, that, you know, it was part of my life. And in many ways, I just, that's kind of how you had to look at it and to balance a life. You know, you think about the business all the time, whether you're in the office or not. So I just kind of accepted that. And so, you know, you, you just try and bring everything else around. You know, I know people talk about life balance and, you know, I'm not sure what that means. I think it's always an imbalance, you know, what you do, whatever you have to do, but the time. And, you know, I, I still enjoyed my kids and all their, their soccer games and basketball games and all those kinds of things. I have two boys, um, as well. And, um, but you still ran the business. So you just kind of had to let it all flow together. Sometimes it wasn't, it's not so much where you've got that cut off. Like I think you do when you work for someone else and, and you really just go in at eight and leave at five. So it's different. And some people love that and other people don't like that so it's whatever fits you
0: and when you were a young girl growing up in Batesville did you play any sports what did you do for extracurricular activity or did you did you start to leave to go to a dance or a basketball game and then you know you saw your father working so hard and you're like no I have to stay
1: Ah, no that didn't happen I mean <laughs> 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 um yeah I know no um actually, you you're gonna tell my age. I was uh, pre-title nine in high school, which meant that women's sports were not very um, uh, well funded, nor were they even encouraged. So the only thing that my high school had was called Girls Athletic Association, GAA, and they would once once a year play another girls' team local from a local school in volleyball, perhaps, or something like that. So it was not well organized. so, I do like sports and I do like playing sports. And so my church, my, you know, our, our Luther league, as we were called, we had teams in everything and we played all of the churches in the neighborhood. So I played softball, we've had co-ed softball teams and volleyball teams uh, in particular um, with my church. And so I got kind of that going there. And then, and when I went into college I did end up playing intercollegiate softball and, um, and volleyball. Uh, basketball. I didn't play intercollegiate because we still had the half court rules for women. I see you guys don't even remember any of this probably. So I'm really aging myself and I didn't want to play half court rules. And so I didn't, I didn't play on the, on the, I played intramurals with basketball instead. But, but yeah, I, I enjoy sports and I still do even after um, after college. One of the nice things at Indiana National Bank in the day, and if anybody who used to work there listens to this, hopefully they'll remember We had our own leagues at Indiana National Bank. We had a women's softball league, which I think we had eight or 10 teams. Each of the departments had their own team. Uh, And then we had a co-ed volleyball teams and and leagues, again, all made up of bank teams. And that was really fun. And so I participated in all that as well. Then when they stopped doing that, I ended up in the Parks League. So softball's kind of followed me around.
0: (laughs) Do you have a favorite female athlete?
1: Ooh, Tamika Ketchens. I mean, we all got to love Tamika, right? Being here uh, and local. Uh, so I would probably say that. Or um, Joan Benoit. If you remember Joan, she's a, a runner who won the first woman's um, marathon in the Olympics in, what, 1984, maybe. I've been kind of a runner um, most of my adult life as well. And uh, so... I got it, got a chance to be, to talk with her after a race in Cincinnati one time. So it was great.
0: One of the things to go back to a previous conversation a few seconds ago, when I talked to, to people about being an entrepreneur, should I, you know, launch my own business? What should I do? And I tell them you cannot sacrifice the totality of your me time. hmm Mm-hmm. And listening to your answer there, it seems like you've done a very good job of saying, I got mom responsibilities, I've got business responsibilities, but damn it, I've got to find some Elaine time.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: How mm-hmm. important was that to you, not only for your physical health, but just your sanity?
1: Yeah, that that's what it was. <laughs> um, you know, I, again, I think being a runner, I, I'm a morning runner, so getting out in the morning where you're just outside getting some exercise, but also clearing your head, kind of getting ready for the day. That's been kind of my downtime when you think about it, my alone time. Uh, and it's been very helpful. And there, there've been some stressful times where I think that saved me. It's just being able to, because, you because know, when you're stressed, getting that exercise helps anyway. And um, uh, again, not being, being out there and enjoying it. So that's, that's been kind of my stress reliever from a lot of that
0: you mentioned a few times, Indiana National Bank. Mm-hmm. Uh, we recorded a podcast several months ago, actually, on the, the administration, the mayorality of Bill Hudnut. Mm-hmm. And one of uh, the guests were Lisa Dietrich. All these are going to be people you know. Lisa Dietrich, Joe Slash, mm-hmm. and Dave Arland. Mm-hmm. And Dave made the point that one of the things that's changed the most in Indianapolis in the last few decades is the absence of a significant number of locally owned banks. Mm. And we have Mickey Maurer, another podcast guest. We have his uh, National Bank of Indianapolis, but as someone who's been in that world, how important to the growth of Indianapolis was the fact that we had merchants, Indiana National Bank, American Fletcher National Bank, and I'm sure there were others, located mm-hmm. right here in Indianapolis, ready to help with the community, ready to be a part of the growth of this city, those are all gone right. in terms of headquarters. Mm-hmm. How important were they, and do you think that's something that we need to try to regenerate as best we can?
1: Well, I think it was very important uh, because when you have three major banks in Indi- Indiana and in, um, Indianapolis in particular, we also had People's Bank and Trust uh, that was here, you know they were restricted to only expanding within their own county and we couldn't, those banking laws were not changed, and yet they were changed other places. And so our banks got bought up by bigger banks and our big banks couldn't get bigger, so they couldn't compete. And so when your headquarters end up being in Cleveland or Chicago or somewhere else, your community suffers. I mean, it really does, because I do, I easily recall when we had the three big banks, when they it. What was something, anything that was needed to be done for the community, they'd get together, and they figure out how to get it done. They were part of the team anyway. Others, other leaders of business were there as well, but I mean, they really made a difference. And I think we really felt it when we lost that. Um, because even though, you know, they say, well, we still have our presence in Indiana, we're still gonna be good to the community. It's just not the same uh, when you're headquartered somewhere else. So. Um, you know, will we ever get that back with the larger banks? I don't know. Growing our own has been interesting. I mean, obviously, National Bank of Indianapolis, old National Bank in Evansville, is also a big player here, and we've got more and more banks that are that are becoming regional and statewide. So that that will help because they're all they because everybody in the community can be their client or their customer. They are very community minded because that's where you know, when they do something good for the community, they know they're doing something good for their clients and their potential clients. And so uh, it's a little bit different than some of the other businesses. So we miss them. I mean, I I think we suffered a little bit because of it at that time.
0: You are a graduate of Hanover, Mm -hmm. um, which is the alma mater of the vice president of the United States, Mike Pence, and Mm -hmm. the current governor of Indiana, Eric Holcomb. What drew you to Hanover And as someone who who cringed whenever my kids brought home their algebra homework, what made you major in math?
1: (laughs) Um, Actually, the reason I went to Hanover is that um, uh, I visited other campuses, not a lot. You know, I visited a few other campuses. And when I got to Hanover, I just kind of felt like it was a good place for me. It was the right size. Um, there was a, um, a, a student in the year ahead of me uh, a, who went and there were a couple others in my class who were going. And so it just seemed like the right place to go. And, you know, it really wasn't that far from Batesville. I mean, we were probably an hour, hours drive down to Madison and then to, to, to Hanover. So it, um, it, it just seemed like a good fit for me. And it turned out to be perfect. I mean, small colleges, Uh, Some people thrive and other people don't, and uh, they need some people just need a bigger environment. And I totally get that. But Hanover was a great place for me. I was able to participate in so many things and, um, you know, get that that social side as well as that leadership side, as well as learning a lot of um, the soft skills, I think, because it is a small college. But the math thing came. um, uh, I was trying to decide what my major should be. And I was going back and forth. And actually, it was my physics professor who said, major in something you like. And um, then, you know, when when you get out in the world, you can always get trained in whatever you need. And I like math. I've always liked numbers. And, uh, you know, I kind of attribute my dad to that. We would always be adding up numbers. My dad could add up a string of numbers. I don't know how Long in his head. I mean, he, he pre-calculator. You know, you kind of did all that kind of stuff, and didn't have a problem with it. We get away from that a little bit now, but um, I, I just like numbers, and so that's what kind of drove me because I said, "Okay, I'll I'll do what's easy for me, what I really like," and I became a math major.
0: And there so was any, was there sorry. any? Go ahead, Danielle. Go ahead.
2: I say so. You're also an author, um, and you, so I'm assuming your book that you wrote is around financial. financial lessons um I can tell you I've not read it but if you were going to write a children's book I have to ask kind of the Girl Scout question and I'm and I 20-year educator financial literacy is not very heavily covered um in my opinion in our state standards so if you were going to write a children's book and let's target I don't know 10, 12, 14 years old. What are some financial lessons that you think youth of today really should know yeah. early on?
1: Oh, absolutely. Uh, yeah, that would be a great age group to start with as well because you need to you need to create your money habits early and you need to understand why. And uh, because so many people right now are influenced by the environment that they're in. And, and so whatever their parents do with money, they tend to do with money. And sometimes that's good and sometimes that's bad. But what I would say is that, you know, they need to understand that they need to save and you need to save for your future starting immediately. Um, that you can't get yourself using credit cards and getting into that black hole where you never can get out. So spending within your means uh, so only spend the money that you have. Don't don't use the credit card from that perspective. And always start saving early. Uh, so what, whatever you, whatever your job is, if they've got a summer job, you know, put at least a third of it, you know, in savings, and then use the rest of it for whatever their purposes are or half or a hundred percent if they can, uh, because that's where you get the the time for that money to grow. So the longer the time we have, uh, the more the money is going to grow. So it's that saving habit, and then. Getting staying away from the credit cards are probably the two important things
2: that I would try and hammer into their heads. So we need to have you one of the pillars in Girl Scouts, which I think you know is entrepreneurship. It's one of four. One of four. And so, you know, we teach a lot of that through the, through the Girl Scout cookie program, but we also try to teach a great deal of financial literacy. And it yeah. really is one of those kind of untapped topics.
1: that I. Well, think you know, and it's the one thing that they can control. You can control your spending if you choose to. And you can control your financial life and make sure that it's going to turn out the way you want to if you choose to. Uh, But too many people get caught up and don't understand that, you know, if you spend that money here, you're not saving it here and you're not going to be able to spend it again. You can only spend a dollar one time. That's what I always like to tell them. It's not like you can you're going to have it recouped for you right away. And um, you just need to get people to kind of think in that 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 angle. But uh, it's important. But it can be controlled.
2: <laughs> well, well, sticking with the lessons of life theme, Robert was talking to you about what you said is balance. Like what is balance really? Right. Um, but is there any, I guess, you know, there's a lot of leadership women stuff out there that women can, women can't, women should, there's not enough women, you name it. Is there any, cause you're obviously a, a woman and you're in amazing leadership roles and you have been most of your life what would you want to debunk for young girls that they might think might be a ceiling for them or a challenge for them in wanting to be a leader in their own way? Is there anything that you've learned that you can say, you know what, that's not true. It's just, it's just a fallacy or what what advice maybe um, would you want to give a young girl about who sees herself as a future leader?
1: Um, Well, you know, I think, well, coming right back to um, Girl Scouts and your idea of courage, confidence, and character. I mean, I think those are three elements. And, you know, we have to have the courage to basically stand up for what we know is right and to take a stand and to do a good job. Um, And you get that from your confidence, your second C there, because I think confidence is so fleeting and you need the confidence to know that you can do something. And I think that's where we all need to support each other as much as we can, because even me, you know, you you have confidence that you can do something, and it can go away so quickly because of a comment from somebody or something that happens and it goes wrong. And that's where women need to remember: okay, that was one incident. Let's get back into the game and and uh, have someone else hopefully say to you, "You're doing great. Keep it up and keep going." And because confidence is fleeting, and yet it is so important to how we conduct ourselves and and our in our business. But you know, character is really important as well, and so being able to to have um, the the values, be it integrity, um, being ethical, and for me, everything's got to be fair. I, I don't know why that is, but it, it's got to be fair. And if something's not fair, I I, I got to fix it. And um, that maybe that's not a good trait, but it, it it's kind of who I am, and what makes me uncomfortable is when we're not treating everybody fairly. And Those are the kind of things I think that make up the character of a person and and the direction that you want to go. But I will tell you that, you know, um, I I've been in kind of a male dominated industries, be it banking, initially the CPA firm, obviously. Um, and sometimes I think what you find yourself up against in some of those situations, what drives you to start your own business. And, um, I will tell you that for the last 30 years, having my own business, uh, kind of being in charge you don't have that same you don't feel that same pressure that you're a woman in a man's world or whatever it might be called um, but it's still out there in the real world I, I guess I kind of learned that stepping back into <laughs> into this type of a life that there's a there's a lot of people out here that are really looking out for themselves in many cases and that's not bad that's not bad but um, sometimes Times deal only with people who they're comfortable with. And I think that's where we all need to learn to deal outside our comfort zone, because the more diverse conversations we can have, the more people we have around the table, the more in um, gender diversity, but racial diversity, the better conversation we'll have on a topic, the better decision we'll make. And I think people are starting to realize that. And I guess that's the one thing that I guess I would tell people is that always make sure that you've got you're in, a, you're in a diverse setting and that you can do whatever you can to make sure that environment is diverse and all those voices are heard because that's going to be the
2: key. I I promise you that's the key to making good decisions. So when your confidence has been shaken in your career, how do you get back up? What's been what's been your go-to way of dusting yourself off? You know what happens a
1: lot of times is someone else not knowing what I'm mentally going through at the time, says something that says, hey, you! thank you for doing this. So you've been doing great on this. And suddenly you think, okay, somebody appreciates what I'm doing, or somebody recognizes this, and maybe I can do this. And maybe we can push on and kind of keep moving on. But uh, so that's why my comment was, we all have to be conscious of making sure we're always telling others, particularly women, that you know, if they're doing a great job, make sure they know they're doing a great job and keep that confidence level up. Um, but you know, sometimes you just have to shake off a bad experience and just put it to the side. And it's hard to do because you always want to be successful. You always want to be pleasing. But there's going to be those times that are going to be a little less. And, but you know, I also have found many times it's in my head more than it's in anybody else's head. You know, and others don't see that as the as maybe the failure that you see, Uh, and I think that's important to do as well to kind of understand that that's from your own viewpoint, and you're being the most critical of yourself, uh, and that others don't see it that way. And so sometimes talking it out and having those conversations, and you know, that's what best friends are for. That's what that's what uh, in our case, what our girlfriends are for to kind of sit there and hear a story and go. Are you crazy? Nobody else thinks that. Why are you saying that? And um, it always helps.
2: I wonder if um, maybe Robert, you can answer this. You know, there's a lot of literature about the imposter factor, right? That we all think that somehow we're an imposter in our own lives. Like how did I possibly get to achieve this level of opportunity or leadership? And it, it has to be a mistake. And so, and I've read a lot about that from a, I'm a mom of four girls. And I think it happens a lot in the girls space. Is that something, Robert, you think men experience as often as women?
0: Well, uh, holding me up to be a spokesman for my gender is fraught with considerable difficulties. <laughs> uh, so ah. I, will, I will gently say, to me, it's more of your socioeconomic background. Uh, a good friend of mine, and I, I think it's okay to tell this story, is an amazing leader named Fred Klipsch. You may be listening to this podcast on some of his speakers, but he went to how high school as I did, and he went to school 78 IPS as I did. And, um, he's been extraordinarily successful. And I asked him one time, you know, when did you stop thinking like a kid from the near east side, from the corner of Sherman and Washington? And he looked at me and goes, I haven't. Mm Mm-hmm. And that may be as good a clue as to his success as you can think of. To me, in my experience, it's more about where you came from, how you grew up. You can't possibly believe that you're this successful based on where you lived, how many parents you had, what you wore to school in the fourth grade, the list goes on and on. Um, I would never say that it's, it's easier for women than it is men. It clearly isn't. But I do believe what is happening in this city and state fostered by having a su- successive lieutenant governors who were women, people like our guest today, Elaine. The list was on and on. Susan Brooks, Angela Brawley, Jackie Morris, Kath Hubbard, uh, Tamika Catchings, Maggie Lewis, uh, is that there's so many female role models and now that didn't exist then in a weird way. And Elaine alluded to this earlier. It's its own version of Title IX. Mm-hmm. That all the things that women and girl, that girls couldn't do in the '60s and early '70s, you know, into the '80s. I don't know any. I have a daughter, but I don't. I, I never hear my daughter say, "Oh, I can't do that. I'm not allowed to do that." And organizations no. like the Girl Scouts and mm-hmm. and the work that Elaine does, and quite frankly, the work that you do, Danielle. And so many terrific female leaders in schools have have either uh, on purpose or just by osmosis put out a a, a a vibe that certain things that were thought not attainable before are certainly attainable now. Elaine, do good. you think about – go ahead.
1: No, I'm just saying good. I'm glad your daughters feel like there's – Nothing they can't do. So um, that's terrific.
0: Well, anything that involves um, um, being a, a, a female entrepreneur these days, when you look at it as someone who started her company, you know, decades ago, do you wish you had some of the tools, some of the different mindsets back then that you have, that you see now? And and are you on board with the notion that there has actually been progress?
1: Progress in women? And and their positions or progress in what?
0: I guess I would would have to ask the question this way. Do you think the white male patriarchy, do you hear me, JSK, uh, who's a friend of mine? Do you think the white male patriarchy is just a lot more accepting of women leaders, women executives, women entrepreneurs than they were in the 70s and 80s?
1: You know, I think everyone will say they are. I mean, I think that there's um, a lot of support for women, not as much support when you look at the entrepreneurs and who's getting the money that, you know, as far as startup companies and things like that. The venture capital money seems to still be going disproportionately to, um, to men. And, you know, so I guess I think everybody wants it to be. But I think when it comes right down to it, it comes down to your comfort level. And, you know, men know what to expect from other men. Women know what to expect many times from other women. So they're more comfortable in those in those groupings. I think it's getting better. I mean, I think there's, there's um, uh, there are truly, truly men who are great supporters and champions of women. I mean, across the board, there definitely are. Is it a general factor everywhere? I'm not sure it is yet. You know, I still think there's a little bit of work to do, uh, but it, of course we've made progress and we just keep needing to do that. Um, it's, it's interesting times. I mean, I think that, um, uh, you know, women need to continue to work to, to make their own way. Um, women who are in front of them who are older need to make sure that we're leaving an open door and a pathway for women to follow as well and to give them the support. But again, it's generational. And again, I love hearing the fact that your daughters feel like they can do anything. That's what we want them to feel like, that they're not in, um, that they have to be in a set mold to only do this, this or this, that they've got the world opened up to them and and I love hearing that. And I think we just need to keep encouraging that.
0: One of the things we've talked about on the podcast is your role as a chief executive officer of the Indiana Destination Development Corporation, which handles tourism, but several other permutations. Hey, that's a math term.
1: <laughs> Very good.
0: It's The only one I know. Let me ask you a quick question about what what, and I'm not an outdoorsy person at all, at all. But how much of a hidden gem to outside visitors, to tourists, is the magnificent Indiana State Parks system?
2: Right.
1: One of the best in the country. And, um, you know, I get people telling me all the time, I just went hiking in Turkey Run State Park. Oh my gosh, it was amazing. And we do have some beautiful parks and waterfalls. And of course, this time of year in the fall, when the leaves are all turning, uh, it's beautiful. And, you know, I've, I, again, have hiked places outside the country, around the world in different states. And some of the best hiking is here and I haven't done it all. That's the problem with Hoosiers who grew up here. We always sometimes think there's better things somewhere else when we really need to experience what's here in a state that has so much variety from end to end. And, um, and now we have our own national state park at the Dunes, which people cannot believe that we have the Dunes State Park with beautiful beaches up around you know, on the Lake Michigan and dunes that you can climb up and and trees grow in sand. I mean, you know, it's just amazing what what's up there. It's one of the actually has more uh, ecological differences and diversity there than many other state parks. They're like number seven on the list of all state parks. So um, great attendance.
0: And we should do a shout out to our friend, Dan Bortner, who's now the head of the Department Absolutely. of Natural Resources. Dan is as good a man as you could possibly meet.
1: Well, and he helped shape the state parks because he was over all the state parks before he took the role as head of DNR. So, um, but we have wonderful state parks and people love them. And uh, once they experience them, they want to do it over and over and over. And I think the COVID has given people that reason to go out. Our parks, our state parks have had higher attendance than ever. I mean, the, the campgrounds are totally sold out because people want to get outside and feel safe being outside and uh, so the state parks have done a great job.
0: Last question I'll have. And then, Danielle, you can tell me if you want, want to do the five questions or if you want me to do them. It's completely up to you. But one of the things that is said with regard to like tourism and hospitality and conventions is that Indianapolis doesn't have a beach. It doesn't have the Eiffel Tower. It doesn't have the River Walk. you know, like a San Antonio. It doesn't have Disney World. So how does in the competition to not only bring conventions here, but to bring just people here who have so many options in normal times and have money to spend, how do we convince them, Hey, why don't you come here and visit this museum or spend the night in this park?
1: Well, by telling them what Indiana's all about and, and getting that messaging right, as I mentioned earlier, but you know, I think, um, when people come here, they come to visit, they come to enjoy some of the amenities that we have. And you're right, we don't have oceans, we don't have mountains. But what i like to tell people, if you live here, you're living here and your dollar goes a lot farther, you've got money to take that quick flight to the mountains or to the beach. And I will tell you that most people who live in those places don't take advantage of being close to the mountains or close to the beach as much as you might think they do. so, you know, it's, it's, it's just kind of sharing the diversity that we have here in opportunities. You know, we have one, you know the top children's museum in the country. We have the number one water park in the country, uh, that being down at Holiday World and Splashing Safari. Uh, as I mentioned earlier, the Dunes National Park is ranked very high for all of its diversity in, in, in plant and animal. So, I mean, there's an awful lot of things that people don't recognize maybe that we have here who've never been here before. And so it's really selling them on all those types of things to do that. Um, We're we're making great progress. And I think people um, who experience Indiana, as we talked about earlier, love it. And, And we're gonna be telling those kinds of stories so that other people can relate to them and can understand themselves what it would be like to be here.
0: This is the Leaders and Legends podcast with our guest, Elaine Beadle. Danielle, do you want to do the five questions?
2: Of course I do. Didn't you say this was the girl power hour, right?
0: <laughs> Despite my best efforts, yes, it's the, it's the girl power hour. Go ahead, you two.
2: <laughs> All right. So, Elaine, what was your first job? Ooh, my first
1: paying job? Yes. Um, I think that was working in the concession stand on the beach at Versailles State Park. I'll bet back to the state park theme. There yeah, we go. Yeah, absolutely. How did I know, way back then, that I'd end up being a supporter of them? <laughs> what about what was your
2: first concert?
1: Hmm, I think that was Chicago.
0: Hey, that's Earth, wind, bad. and
1: fire. Huh? That's
0: not. That's not bad at all.
1: Yeah, Chicago, Earth, wind, and fire playing at. Can't remember if I was if it was Purdue or Ohio State one of the larger universities that some friends and went over while we were in college.
2: So uh, the days of concerts, I cannot I wait know. for them to come back. Exactly. If you could recommend one book for um, others to read, what book would you recommend?
1: Well, you're, um, there, there are quite a few interesting books. I think the one that I actually haven't even finished yet, and I'm a big audible. I mean, I, I, I listen all the time as opposed to actually having a book in front of me. Um, but there's one called The Psychology of Money that was written by Morgan Hassel, H-O-U-S-E-L. And it just has started, I, I picked, I heard about it and I decided to, this may be a book that I can recommend to the young people that are trying to get started because it has some of those basic lessons in it and a lot of good, good um, substance behind it. But there's, there's a lot of good books out there that um, uh, I picked up the other day, Think Like a Monk and Listen to It. Um, that is one of those books that can help you kind of put your life in perspective. And uh, this is a gentleman who wrote it is Jay, um, Jay Shetty, I think. And he um, was a monk and now is not a monk anymore, but he, he talks about the practices of monks that can really help put your... Put your psyche in in place. I, I'm not a big pleasure book reader. I I don't.
0: I so I tend to. Sounds. It sounds, do, it sounds like it, Elaine. It sounds. It sounds, <laughs> it.
1: it sounds like a math major, doesn't it?
2: <laughs> <laughs> Too funny. Okay, we're not supposed to judge their answers, Robert. What about if you could witness one moment in history, be there as it happened? What event would you want to have seen? That's a monumental question, but
1: I have always been a huge fan of President Abraham Lincoln. And I think being there when he gave the Gettysburg address would
2: have been would be my a choice. That would be my choice, I think. Okay. And then our fifth question, if you could have 2 hours off the record dinner with one person who's living today, who would that person be? First person that comes to mind is uh, Madeleine Albright.
1: I think uh, the conversations that or negotiations that she must have been in as Secretary of State with some heads of other countries um, would would be interesting. I had the chance of hearing her when she was in Indianapolis speak um, at Newfields, actually in the Indianapolis Museum of Arts Museum because they had the display of all of her pins Remember, every pin that she wore was had a significant meaning and she had an eagle pin that she would go into meetings with and it gave her power. I mean, she she wore on her on her on her chest exactly what she was thinking, usually and and made no made no light of that. She was very, uh, you know, let people know that's what she was thinking. And so I, I just think she's a pretty strong woman, obviously. So that would be my can you arrange that for me? Robert
2: knows lots of people. And man, <laughs> no, Girl Scouts has a lot of connections as well. So I'm not going to sell myself too short. Good. I know you. I know you can do it.
0: You have been listening to Leaders and Legends, a podcast presented by Veteran Strategies, a local veteran public relations enterprise and sponsored by Girl Scouts of Central Indiana, Garmond Construction, the Crown Plaza Hotel, Grand Hall and Conference Center at Historic Union Station the law firm of Bose, McKinney and Evans, and the Bose Public Affairs Group, the McGinley's Golden Ace Inn, and McAllister Machinery, your friendly neighborhood Caterpillar dealer. Our guest today has been Elaine Beadle, and our co-host has been Danielle Shaki. Thank you both very much for coming on the podcast.
1: My pleasure. Thank you for the opportunity.
0: Thank you very much for listening to Leaders and Legends, brought to you by Veteran Strategies Incorporated. If you want to contact us about this program or our menu of public relations services, please send us an email at robert at veteranstrategies.com. That's robert at veteranstrategies.com.